Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. To Tell the Truth is proud to present the Supremes. In 1965, a game show that had become a fixture on CBS, a show called To Tell the Truth, started in an unusual way with a live performance of this song. Baby love, baby love, I need you, I have a need you, but all you do is treat me bad, break my heart and leave me sad. The trio of singers were just about the hottest musical act in America in 1965. These are the Supremes. They're singing Baby Love, a prime example of the biggest thing in rock and roll, the Motown sound. But the Supremes, with lead singer Diana Ross, they weren't the focus of the show. Instead, it was the man who had made the Supremes famous, a man not nearly as identifiable to the American public as the stars that he promoted. Someone whose creative energy, whose entrepreneurship, had already profoundly changed American music. The Motown sound was created by one of these three men. What is your name, please? My name is Barry Gordy, Jr. My name is Barry Gordy, Jr. My name is Barry Gordy, Jr. Only one of these gentlemen is the real Barry Gordy, Jr. The other two are imposters and will try to fool this panel. So that evening in 1965, the celebrity panel on To Tell the Truth got to ask the real Barry Gordy and the fake ones questions. Here's actress Kitty Carlisle addressing a question to the real Gordy. Kitty Carlisle. Uh, number one, what did you do before you started this company? I was a, uh, I was uh, an employee of uh, Ford Motor Company. Unfortunately, he must not have been super convincing. Not one celebrity believed Barry Gordy to be himself. They all put their bets on the imposters, who turned out to be in reality a doctor and a hairstylist. Will the real Barry Gordy Jr. please? Stand up. <laughs> the fact that Gordy could at once be so closely associated with a pantheon of stars, the Supreme, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, The Temptations, and yet not be immediately recognizable, spoke to the way that he viewed his role in the music business. He was, as he said on the show, a former employee of Ford, and he understood that behind beautiful, impressive cars was a whole lot of work that no one ever saw. That's something he recalled decades later. You just like the auto factory. I used to see those cars coming in, you know, a bare metal frame, and they got a brand new car. So I said, wait a minute, why can't I do that with music, my music and my, you know, with the people I work with? The Motor City, that's the place I'm singing of. Duke Fakir, one of the members of the Four Tops, said that Detroit in the late 50s and early 60s, while Motown was just getting off the ground, it was a place where music and auto manufacturing felt like they both underpinned the city. There was a lot of music. There was a lot of going out, coming in. People were working hard. You know, the factories, you could hear them clinking and clanking. Uh, and it had, a, it had like a rhythm to it, you know? And what Barry Gordy did in the Motor City, which is where the Mo and Motown comes from, it was nothing less than a transformation of rock music. The first sort of explosion of rock and roll had kind of, if not exactly petered out, had changed, had sort of, uh, the, the, the spark had gone a little. Adam White is a music journalist, and he's the author of Motown, The Sound of Young America. 
he says that Gordy understood that rock longed for an injection of something new. If you think about, you know, rock and roll's birth in sort of 1954, 55, uh, with the likes of Bill Haley, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, and so on, you know, that was a remarkable explosion, both for the kids who bought the music and who adored and consumed the music. But then by 1960, the flame had dimmed a little bit. But Motown transformed a lot more than American music. It changed American culture, and it changed what seemed possible. Here's Gordy again in a 2015 interview talking about why he believed in a highly segregated country, black artists could appeal to white audiences. People are human beings, and we're all, you know, we feel the same things. And that's, that was the whole purpose of me forcing my songs on right, white radio because I felt that we're all the same. And understanding that sameness also happened to be great business. Not tell everybody all the time. It was not as hard as people think because I made the truth entertaining. Adam White, the music journalist, says a lot of the most exciting entertainment around 1960 was from singers with at least some R&B flavor. Folks like the Coasters, the Shirelles, and Ray Charles. Teenagers was listening either to R&B stations or they were listening to pop stations that would play some of that URB music. So in brief, Barry's timing was very good in that sense. There was an opportunity for him. And Gordy was relentless. He had some success as a boxer, and he was not someone who passed up golden opportunities. White says Gordy actually spent his time on the assembly line at Ford dreaming up songs in his head. And when he started his record label with a loan of just a few hundred dollars, he never forgot what cars had taught him. The quality control element of Motown was something that he picked up directly from working in a car factory. He understood how everything had to be at a level of quality and integrated unusually for a music company into his business. And so, you know, some records were thrown out because they weren't good enough, just like a car that would come through that perhaps the part, you know, wasn't polished enough or something wasn't fixed on well enough or the mirror was the wrong shade. He understood that element of it, which worked in music as indeed in other aspects of life, that there's a direct link to the experience he had before he got into music. Gordy's approach worked. Motown's rise was meteoric, and the label started churning out hits almost immediately, like this one. That's Please Mr. Postman by the Marvelettes, a group of teenagers who had sung together in the Glee Club at Inkster High School in Michigan. It became the most popular song in America, and the first from Motown to hit number one. The success was confirmation for Gordy that he could bring more than a new sound to America. He could mint legions of stars, high school kids, obscure singers who were little more than raw talents. And he could get the world to notice. Take Barrett Strong, a teenager who recorded another immensely successful song for Gordy, not long before Please Mr. Postman burst on the scene. Strong's single, which climbed high on the R&B charts, was called Money, That's What I Want. Sue 
soon, a relatively new group from England was so profoundly affected by Motown and the Motown sound that they decided to cover both Please Mr. Postman and Money, That's What I Want. The group was called The Beatles. But White says that the Beatles' embrace of Motown changed everything for Barry Gordy in a couple of ways. Firstly, financially, Barry had his own publishing company. You know, he had his own songwriters, roster of songwriters, and published everything in-house. This was a man to whom self-sufficiency was absolute key to Hmm. his success and to his progress and the way he built his business. So when the Beatles recorded those songs, not only did that music begin to influence others? And indeed, the Beatles talked up. I mean, the Beatles were essentially Motown's biggest fans at that point. Mm. And the word of mouth that they gave to those artists was extraordinary. And you couldn't have bought that with money. Those are the best fans to have, right? If the Beatles are your number one fan, that's pretty good. Absolutely. And they would talk about them. You know, they would talk about the Miracles and Smokey Robinson. They would talk about Mary Wells. Once you have that, you know, you're on the map. The other thing you have to remember is because Barry uh, had his own publishing company and published those songs, the money that came in when the Beatles album started to sell on the scale they did, not just in the U.S. or the U.K., but around the world, that money came into Motown, into Motown's publishing arm, and it Hmm. gave it a cash injection, the likes of which helped it to build, helped it to grow. So the Beatles did things both financially and creatively, if you like. But you're absolutely right to identify that as a key moment in the company's growth and success. Hmm. Um, Let's talk about another aspect of Motown's success. Um, I remember a few years ago interviewing Guy Kawasaki, who worked for Steve Jobs, and uh, one of the things he said was, you know, a lot of people know that Steve Jobs was kind of controlling sort of a micromanager. And um, uh, Kawasaki said that the organizational structure was like Steve Jobs and 10,000 direct reports. Um, <laughs> and, and you write about Barry Gordy as um, also being kind of a micromanager. He had he hired um, a mistress of etiquette. Yep. He had a master of choreography. It really it sounds to me like he didn't want to leave a lot to chance with his artists. No, but he was smart enough as the business grew to understand that he had to pass responsibility to other people. And that was a key quality, too, because in a business which you could would be easily identifiable as a black business, as an African-American business, Barry didn't care who he hired, the color of their skin, as long as they could do the job. So one of the key hires for him in 1961, and it goes back to the record you played earlier, Marvelettes, Please, Mr. Postman, was a guy called Barney Ailis. And he was... A salesman. He was one of the best salesmen in the business. He'd had some experience in in Detroit before, but he was a Motown distributor early. Barry spotted him and realized this man had a salesman's talent, and he Mm. brought him on board on staff in 1961, and it was Barney's job to get the records played and the company paid. And Barry took some heat for that. You know, why not hire a black man to do that job? And Barry didn't care because he just wanted someone who could do the job so you open your book by describing riots in Detroit. It's 1967. And at that time, as, as you sort of lay it out, there are Motown stars scattered all over the city. They're practicing music. Fires are ripping through town. Um, the governor of Michigan, George Romney, asks the president, Lyndon Johnson, to call in federal troops. 
Why uh, did you start your story there? Uh, it was dramatic. It was, in a sense, it was the antithesis of what Motown was trying to accomplish. Um, it was it was a moment, you know, beyond imagination. It was a moment where people rose up for a different set of reasons that had to do with their environment and their condition and their lives. I think it was a reflection of the way America had changed by 1967. You know, if you think about Motown began in a more promising period, you know, under JFK, um, when the mood was more optimistic. I think the fact that ultimately that, that optimism was not correctly placed, that it didn't lead to where um, people hoped it would mm -hmm. um, cause the riots. So it's a mirror, if you like, to what Motown was able to do and an indication of the limits of what it could do. And, uh, right after those riots um, in Detroit, I think just a few weeks after, Gordy had this huge national sales convention um, in Detroit to try to sell the music. One of the things he said there was that Motown showed, and this is a quote, people of all races not only can but do work together to achieve heights previously limited by lack of understanding. How much do you think Barry Gordy cared about, like, politics and social issues? Uh, how much did that factor into what he was doing as a business person? He understood it, but he was, as you say, he was a business person. He mm -hmm. was clear-minded, ambitious, and determined. And it was about music and success in entertainment and showbiz. He cared about making his artists accepted and popular, first in America and then across the world. So, of course, he was not blind or deaf to what was happening around him. He could not be. But I think he was determined that his business and the music his company was making and his artists were making was the key. If he got distracted, that purpose would be affected. So um, mm -hmm. I think he was very clear of that. And, and he took a great deal of criticism for that, particularly in that late 60s period after the riots and as the, the racial climate was uh, more dangerous and was more heightened. So he, he did certain things, uh, some of it behind the scenes. Um, look, he issued three albums by Dr. Martin Luther King. He made a commitment. He spent, he made donations to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He was aware of that climate, mm -hmm. but his business was music, and he left the politics to other people. You broke my heart because I couldn't dance. You didn't even want me around. And now I'm back to let you know I can really shake them down. We're going to come back in a minute with more of the story of Motown and Barry Gordy. And by the way, the song you're hearing right now is Do You Love Me from 1962. It's performed by the Contours, but it was written by Gordy himself. Watch me now! In just a few seconds, we'll talk about Motown reaching maturity and increasing tension in the ranks. But first... If you want to know more about Innovation Hub, from what's coming up on the show, to what the staff is reading this week, to how you can send us comments that might get you featured on the air, head to innovationhub.org and look over on the right side of the screen. There you will see how you can get on our mailing list. So, okay, now back to the story of Motown and of the man who started it, a former boxer and assembly line worker named Barry Gordy Jr., who in the late 1950s dreamed of being in the music business. 
By the early 1960s, Gordy was a major force in music. And he and his artists were changing American business and American culture. But the struggle for civil rights and women's rights, the war in Vietnam, they were forces reshaping Motown's artists. And they made Gordy, who was a pragmatic, hard-charging businessman, a little worried. Love Child, released by Diana Ross and the Supremes, centered on the issues of poverty and illegitimacy, which was different from the sort of traditional love songs that the group had sung years before. Ross was one of Gordy's big stars, along with folks like Stevie Wonder. And by the late 1960s, after major riots all across the country, including in Detroit, where Motown was based, politics had begun creeping into the music around them. In 1971, another huge Motown star, Marvin Gaye, came out with this song, What's Going On. Those lyrics, picket lines and picket signs, don't punish me with brutality, they weren't subtle. And Gordy knew, as he recalled much later, exactly what was happening with Marvin Gaye. He changed his image altogether and became an activist singer, put out an activist album, and I said, you're only our pop star. You're our main pop star. Why do you want to talk about police brutality and this and that? He said, because... You know, I want to waken the minds of mankind. I have a brother in Vietnam, and I don't care about being no pop singer. I just want to be a singer. Adam White, author of Motown, The Sound of Young America, says this was a moment when tensions escalated between artists who wanted to take more of a stand in a country that was rapidly changing and Gordy, a micromanager who wanted to protect the business he had poured his life into. Marvin was the epitome of it. Hmm. And... The the analogy has often been drawn with a family. You know, these young singers uh, and musicians grew up. And when you grow up in a family, there comes a point where you need to chart your own path. You need to find your own way forward. You need to be true to yourself, which is what happened particularly with Marvin and also with Stevie. They had spent 10 years absorbing, learning, um, becoming the best they could be, thanks to Motown and to Barry Gordy's business. But ultimately, the talented ones with a vision and a depth to them, wanted to be their own person. And Marvin was one of those, and Stevie was one of those. And that, you know, it's like a teenager clashing with his or her parents. That's going to happen. Barry came to understand that. He told me once that at the beginning, he, he was very uncomfortable. He didn't like that, what was happening with his artists. He didn't like that they were becoming independent and not willing to play the game the way he wanted it. But he understood in time that that's what was going to happen. It was a direct result of his success in guiding them to that point. 
So let's go back kind of to the beginning here. Uh, we opened with Diana Ross and the Supreme singing Baby Love. Um, and then we heard Love Child, which was a later hit of theirs. Obviously, Diana Ross was a very important star um, of Motown. And she was also somebody who had a romantic relationship with Barry Gordy. What was particularly important about her, both uh, to the label, but also to Gordy himself? Everything up to that point, the release of that record and and its success was prologue in a way, because that was the real breakthrough. Sure, Motown had had some successful records before, they'd had big hits before, but that was suddenly the point at which the game changed, and particularly through television. And what you have to remember is that when the Supremes first appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show in late December 1964, that's really when things changed, because suddenly there were these three great-looking black girls beaming into America's living rooms. that began to change things and it also began to help Berry understand the ambition and the horizons that he could rise to because of that success, because of that that crossover appeal is, is the way that it's often referred to in the industry. But that was the point at which I think he realized there was a star. There was both in the group and then in Diana. There was something that could go all the way. And at that point soon after, after they've had you know, five consecutive number one records, he started to put them into into the mainstream of American showbiz. But television helped them do that. Do you think when you listen to music today, or even think about the industry today, it could be either on the sort of music level or on the more uh, sort of businessy level of things, what do you feel like Motown's legacy is? What, you know, it, what is its lasting influence I think it stood for something beyond music. It stood for, at any level, it stood for excellence, it stood for determination, it stood for success. It, it was kind of like if you start from the ground up and you know what you want to do and you have some skill at it, you can get anywhere. I mean, this young man from Detroit achieved something that is not likely to be forgotten, and I think it will endure past the baby boomer generation. Mm. There's a tendency to see it only as a a mirror and a reflection of the last 50 years and that generation growing up. I think in part because of the excellence of the songs, the universality of the lyrics, and the sort of almost the business model, um, it will endure. It will always be something to refer to and to look at as a mark of American excellence and its influence worldwide. Um, There's there's one other point I I would like to make, actually, that I think is somewhat not recognized as much, um, understandably given the power of the music and the artists and the talent. But the other thing about that business and about Berry in particular was he gave women responsibility unlike almost anyone else in the music business at that time. Now, part of this was family because he grew up with sisters and they, you know, they helped him in the business. But he was willing to give women beyond family responsibilities and roles that at the time no one else would do. Hmm. And I think that's something in this era that, that is worth recognizing and, and praising. Um, you know, he didn't think twice about it. It was something that just came naturally to him. Indeed, he, mm-hmm. he made a joke to me once. He said, you know, when he first started hearing about women's rights, he thought it was a step down because he knew they controlled everything anyway. <laughs> 
Adam White is a music journalist. He's the author of the book Motown, The Sound of Young America. Adam, thank you so much. Kara, a pleasure talking to you, and uh, thank you. On our website, we'll have more videos of Barry Gordy interviews, including his full appearance on the television show To Tell the Truth, which I mentioned earlier. We'll also have a playlist from author Adam White looking at what, in his view, were the most impactful songs in the evolution of Motown. That's all at innovationhub.org.